Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Like, you know, how, how, how do you value those? A- Avatar? I mean, look, there's, the hits keep coming, you know. Uh... Do they? <laughs> we have yet to see the hits keep coming since 2008, right? That's true. Look, every time Cameron leaves, he comes back 10 times stronger. Everybody doubts him, and then he comes back, and it's like, actually, I'm going to make $47 billion with this new film, uh, and Alita didn't count, and that's that's what happens. Uh, so, yeah. Alita did count. It's one of his better movies. Uh, okay. Also, not direct that movie. Oh. Yes, that's I, why it didn't count. It was a produced by. It's one of his better Maybe produ- got produced the joke. movies. Uh, I, I sure didn't. But uh, you know what I did get? I got a handle on this intro. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial on Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trial on Cinema and at trialon.org. Get tickets and stuff and uh, ways to support them, including. Uh, actual in-person showings of movies these days i understand that their capacity is going to be opening back up to full capacity still no concessions or anything just be careful when you go mask etc uh but that's all aside um my name is jason daphnis i get paid to be a masochist and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus i'm cody narvison and for as many times as i've seen it it took me a little too long to remember that boris karloff narrated the 1966 how the grinch stole christmas special uh, so you can take that with you uh, you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh uh just to check we don't pay you to produce this podcast do we jason ouch uh i majored in english literature which is a thing somebody said and also a thing that is true um and you can find me on twitter at shiitake harry i don't remember if i said my name i don't care you didn't but it's harry <laughs> uh i'm aaron uh mark's brothers make you laugh garbo makes you weep aaron makes you scream uh and you can find me on twitter at rb please <laughs> that's pretty good uh you can't actually find him on twitter at rb please because he is in fact uh, off twitter but you know who's not off twitter our good friend jenny ackerson returning from uh let's see rebels of the neon god our one car y series and more hello jenny hello thank you for having me back um i am deed on twitter i think at ackerson jenny um noodles for brains thank you so much Find her there uh, or on this forthcoming podcast episode where we're talking about Targets, the 1968 debut of uh, American filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. Um, I think Aaron's got a pretty lengthy summary, so I will let him get started because uh, even his short ones are pretty long. But uh, <laughs> Oh, come on. Yes, yeah, so I'll start making my way through this. Uh, yes, Targets, 1968, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, the first film that he directed with his name attached officially. Uh, although, uh, weird aside, quick aside here, hopefully for a long summary, uh, it should be noted that he was credited as directing uh, under the pseudonym uh, Derek Thomas, uh, the film Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women, uh, which came out earlier in 1968, but only had about 10 minutes of new footage, uh, mostly used old footage from an earlier Russian film called Planeta Blur. Um, if you are, if, if the, the film title Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women uh, uh, 
you know, gets your interest a little bit, I would invite you to go read that Wikipedia summary. It is pretty delightful. Uh, but Targets, it could be said, uh, was the first film that uh, Bogdanovich really like directed and got credited for. Um, the story was also uh, by Polly Platt, who served as the film's uh, production designer uh, as well. Uh, the film stars Boris Karloff as Byron Orlock, a fictionalized version of Karloff uh, himself, uh, kind of an aging, increasingly cynical horror movie actor who has d- uh, decided to retire from Mosin Pictures after becoming uh, disillusioned with the direction of cinema, specifically kind of a lot of the violent content of modern films, as well as the increasingly violent nature of modern life and its inability to uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, he's, he's horrified is what he's seeing in real life. And, and the screen kind of um, disturbs him as well. He is convinced by his assistant, Jenny played by uh, Nancy Shea, uh, as well as up and coming young director, Sammy Michaels, played by uh, Bogdanovich himself, to make a final promotional appearance at a drive-in theater playing one of his films. Uh, the film also looks at a young man named Bobby Thompson, played by Tim O'Kelly, whose story runs in parallel to Orlock's until they meet at the climax of the film. Thompson is a Vietnam War veteran who lives with his wife and his parents in San Fernando Valley, and one day, uh, to the surprise of those around him, he brutally murders his wife and mother, uh, before going on a killing spree, sniping drivers on the, the freeway from a nearby uh, oil processing facility. He eventually ends up hiding in a drive-in movie theater where his path eventually crosses with Orlocks, whose fear of the growing violence in everyday life comes to like a startling head. Um, the film is also the first film, it should be said, along with Paper Moon to kick off the Polly Platt series at the Trilon. Polly Platt uh, was an Academy Award-nominated film producer, costume designer, production designer, screenwriter, just j- ultimate jack-of-all-trades. Um, she worked on a number of other uh, Bogdanovich films, not just Targets, but also Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, um, but had a, a large career uh, outside of that as well. She was incredibly prof- prolific, and Targets is, I think, a pretty good jumping off point for looking at her career. That's what I got, Jason. Thank you, Aaron. And Bogdanovich's. This is, I believe, maybe the first Bogdanovich film I've seen, at least in modern history. Uh, I just want to give my quick thoughts off the top, then I'll pass to uh, Cody, Harry, Aaron, and then Jenny. We're going to um, be talking a lot, I hope, about this movie's sort of fear of the past and sort of its paranoia for the future, almost like a scorn for the future, embodied mostly through uh, Karloff's character of Orlok, um, but also through, I guess, some elements of the supporting cast and generally the the pacing and plot all give me that feeling. Um, it we all I think we brought up a number of movies. We'll probably reference a number of movies as we go, but this movie has like a lot of DNA that was seeded through movies like uh, Birdman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, some Joker, obviously Taxi Driver. I believe that came later. I'm not really a film historian, um, but the like the the seeds that it set for um you know the for culture as it followed uh there's i, I think famously um Bogdanovich himself penned in the wake of the Aurora shooting Aurora Colorado shooting back in 2012 um he himself penned for uh, the Hollywood Reporter a um sort of a mea culpa about the you know state of mass shootings in America and sort of how he regretted that he was um you know that he might have contributed to some of that fascination and some of that uh you know violence in in public discourse through this movie uh, which is sort of I don't know if it's quite guided or misguided but it's definitely like it had legs uh throughout you know the remaining fifty years of culture um. I think it's really fascinating to go back and look at this movie through both that lens of like how it, uh, you know, what it was trying to say about desensitization to culture and like, quote unquote, excuse me, to violence and to learning from the past, et cetera, and fearing the future. Uh, and 
also um from like just a character study as well it's it's really fascinating on a few levels um i'm still coming around on like what quality i'd give it if i had to assign it like a star rating but i'm hoping to come out with that uh by the end of this discussion because um as it goes from here i am packing up my bags i am getting in the car uh and i am leaving uh for cody's house because i'm going to hand the torch off to him for his uh quick summary of thoughts what's in those ideas be be very careful cody I, I, hey, I'm going to do what I can to not even look at those, much less touch them or, or open them. Uh, but I appreciate making the, the trip over to my crib. Jason, that's very sweet of you. Uh, yeah, this is a, a wild movie as well as, I, I, I think, a good movie. Uh, maybe quite a good movie. Uh, I'm, I'm still, we watched it a couple days ago. I'm still digesting, as I like to do. Um, it, it would certainly make for a more visceral and rewarding experience, I'm sure, if you're able to see it in a theater. Um and I think that opportunity is uh, is coming up, um, you know, as we've already plugged. Uh, I, I feel like it's been a while since I've seen a movie that is, you know, very clearly one or two different things and then sort of transforms partway through into something new. And the moment when that clicks uh, for me or just for the general viewer is the sort of payoff that I really enjoy. Um, so there are a lot of nice sensations for me while watching this in that way. Um this this weirdly feels like a very big movie, right? Like weirdly ambitious. And when I say that Targets becomes something new, it feels likely that what I latched onto is merely one branch of a big ass tree. And it hits me that way because, you know, we, we split our focus between, we, we talked about, or rather Aaron talked about in his great summary, Boris Karloff's, um, excuse me, aging film star character. And then you got Tim O'Kelly's, veteran insurance agent gun collector character and what makes this movie such an unnerving uh thing to watch such an unnerving experience is the fact that it's difficult to fully align ourselves with either of these people singularly and yet we you know we drunkenly fall asleep with byron orlock and we sit in the passenger seat next to bobby thompson as he outruns cops after a shooting spree and we as viewers ultimately need to cling to something and so i guess what i clung to is the idea that's already been alluded to but like the convergence of these two arcs being a sort of manifestation of byron orlock's uh deep-seated anxieties about the world and his place in it you know the, the shift that the shifting from one era to the next is an unforgiving process uh that the movie space isn't fit for him anymore and or vice versa that real world problems are more frightening than anything that could come out of the silver screen and only when orlock confronts those anxieties uh you know it's only at that point that he can peacefully move on to the next or to the final phase of his life but even saying that you know, it only sounds like a part of a bigger whole because this movie gestures at a lot of big things. And um, uh, maybe this hits us in any number of ways because a lot of these things are still very relevant in the year 2021, um, you know, obsessions with firearms, the ways in which we, you know, uh, uh, assist and don't assist veterans, uh, perhaps um, suburban restlessness, question mark, uh, how the film industry does and doesn't sort of care for talent that it thinks it can't use anymore. Probably lots of other things too, that we can maybe get into. There's uh, a certain messiness to it, um, which I'm kind of in uh, uh, Jason's boat of, you know, I I'm still weighing out the ambition versus the the final product. Uh, maybe that messiness is out of necessity, but I'm, I'm still not quite sure. But regardless, I'm 
looking forward to putting the pieces together with the fine folks here. And for now, uh, I think we can shift our focus to Harry, who I, I see is now pulling into the drive-in theater. Harry, I'm waving my arms. If you can see me, there's a spot over here just on the other side of me, if you want it. Um, you don't have oh, to. Oh, your lights to the sniper. Oh, God. Uh, it's me. Hello. I'm the sniper. Uh, it's Harry. Um, you guys said some really interesting stuff that I um, am excited to discuss. I liked your characterization, Jason, of a movie that is anxious about or um, disgusted by the future. That was an interesting take because I kind of, I think that this movie ultimately arrives at something like um, not quite the inverse of that, but it complicates it. This, this is um, almost an inverse, no country for old men to me. That's my sort of um, starting off take. Um, I think Cody, uh, you said a lot of really good things in that this is a rich text in the sense that it's examining a lot of different things at once. I think that the, um, the reputation that this movie hit has is as a very prescient movie because of the way that it examines and uh, reconciles with mass shootings and the ways in which mass shootings become increasingly unmotivated seemingly and impossible to understand, which is also, again, something that um, No Country for Old Men sort of deals with. Um, I think that this movie ultimately arrives at a very important demythologization of that idea and of the idea that there is some fundamental change happening and that people like Orlov um, or films like his are no longer at all relevant in society. Um, I think that this movie instead ends up at a place that says that actually the same ultimate motivations are still motivating and therefore um, the sort of humanistic insights that we have to take away from films are still relevant. People like Orlov are still relevant. We still have something to learn from them. And that the same thing that was creating monsters then is still creating monsters. It's still the fundamental things we aren't addressing in society, the same fundamental ills and masculine entitlement and masculine resentment and um, and the, the roles that men are are made to play in society. Um, I think that this movie has a lot to say about all of those things. I think the reason why it is regarded as so prescient has to do maybe as much with that demythologization as um, with the fact that it just sort of like takes a very um, uh, sort of like pointed and scary look at the, the role of mass shootings in contemporary society. So that's really interesting to unpack. Um, I don't disagree with the messiness on display here. I think that some of the performances that aren't by um, Boris Karlov um, or Nancy um, she are kind of a little wooden. Um, and that can be a problem. I, I am still unpacking how I feel about those exactly, which is an interesting place to be. I will say, though, that from a formal perspective, particularly in the first act of this movie, I really like some of the things it's doing. I really love that these stories about the uh, the former monster and the contemporary monster, if you will, unfold in parallel, almost as if we are it's a tale of two monsters, right? And we get to see both of those people demythologized, right? Like as we sort of get to know the real monster of this film, the shooter, we can sort of begin to piece together his psychology and why he does what he does. Just as we can see that um, Boris Karlov's character is not the um, illustrious, terrifying master of horror that we thought he was. He's just a disillusioned old man. Um, that's a very interesting place to start with this. And I think that it ends up at a place where, um, it's to me, it reads as a spirited sort of defense of 
the capacity of art and of film to help us understand other people, even horrifying and, and potentially um, ununderstandable events such as mass shootings. Um, that sort of is an interesting place to start for Bogdanovich's career, right? In, in that he would continue to explore those things later um, through his filmography. And um, I guess I'm interested in, in finding out where you all landed on that, because I, I definitely think that this is a movie with a lot of on its mind, maybe one that raises more questions than it does answers. Although I do think that it, it arrives at some answers of its own too. So that'll be interesting to discuss. Um, and now I have to hand it over to Aaron. Aaron, please be in my movie. Uh, it, it can't happen without you. Uh, I, I will have my people talk to your people and there will be a very large number with a lot of zeros at the end of it, but we, we can come to a, uh, an agreement there. Um, Harry, I have some very specific things I think to respond to what you just said, I think in a, in a good way. Um, uh, so I really quick first, I, I quite enjoyed targets. Uh, this was my first Bogdanovich. Um, I think despite being a, you know, pretty clearly horrifying film, I think it, it goes down kind of easily. Uh, part of that's the runtime. Part of that's that it feels even like 30 minutes shorter than the runtime. Um, it, it, it's a weirdly smooth film for how horrifying it is, I guess. And maybe that's just a, maybe I'm a sicko, but um, as Harry kind of pointed out, I, I did start to watching. It was a weird experience because I started to nitpick some of the elements of the film as I was watching it. Um, as Harry mentioned, uh, some of the performances and the acting feels a little stiff. Um, one thing I noticed at the beginning is some of the editing, specifically some of the sound editing feels like a little wonky to me. Um, and a lot of these elements clash against uh, wonderful examples of the same thing, right? There are some really wonderful performances in this film and there's some sound editing that's like really inspired specifically later in the film. So I was kind of confused um, as I was watching it, maybe even by the time that I was done with the film, uh, I, I was quite confused as to, to some of my specific thoughts there. Um, but I think that over the, the last kind of few days uh, after watching the film, thinking about it, I think what I, I came to um, understand, understands me, what I came to think is that the, this film is like much larger than any specific individual elements, like much, much more so than I think most movies. Um, and although there are wonderful performances and little things to point to, this film is, is like, ultimately 100% uncompromisingly focused on doing one specific thing. Um, and it is the rare film in which those individual elements kind of feel like they don't matter at a certain point. Um, you know, this is a film that like unflinchingly drives towards its climax. Uh, characters literally drive towards the climax. Um, and it, it often doesn't really take too much time to stop along the way. Um, I think that a lot of that is, uh, you know, kind of shout out to Polly Platt um, who created the, the story of this film. Uh, at least most of it. Specifically, she created the idea of, you know, the climax happening at a drive-in movie theater. There's, there's like a lot of these very meta elements um, that maybe weren't as meta at the time, but certainly feel uh, that way after decades of, of directors who are inspired by this film and films like it. Um, details like that make the film feel incredibly intentional. Um, and as others have pointed out, you can see the uh, influences that this film has seemed to had on uh, the Coen brothers, uh, Tarantino specifically, um, you know, th this film, I don't know. I, I'm like really like going to bat for it, despite maybe there being like little things to, to kind of nitpick, but I, I really enjoyed my time with it. So, um, uh, Jenny, I don't have a, a witty lead in. So Jenny, what were your thoughts on this film? Uh, yeah. So I guess this is my maybe fourth Bogdanovich film and, Polly Platt's just done so much. This is maybe like the 
tenth of her movies that she's I've seen that she's been a part of. And um, knowing that it was their first major film together that they worked on the story with, I and knowing her history as a production designer and just kind of the, the ways that they were so steeped in being huge fans of movies, I just watched the entire thing with that lens, like trying to observe what was going on in the creators' minds uh, when they wanted to write this movie. And it has a lot of interesting aspects that I can go into later later about why it was even made or how they manipulated it. But overall, I found myself really just, it, it was hard to soak in this uh, random shooter, this random killing, because so much of other popular media now is dissecting the minds of serial killers and kind of glamorizing like what it's like to figure out the people behind the gun or whatever's happening there. And this, um, I wrote in my, my notes on my notes app, just dumbass gunmen. And then just a couple other comments there. (laughs) It's just a a little bit like hard to reckon with. Like I'm not really familiar with uh, the so-called randomness of these mass shootings that occurred then, because now everything is so racially charged, you know, there's, there's a lot more meaning and reason behind it. And there was a total lack of reason and meaning here that I couldn't hold on to. Uh, and then there's the entire other half of the movie, which is the most meta exploration of uh, Boris Karloff and then also Peter Bogdanovich being in the movie himself um, that I, I found like they were, they were trying to do something really smart there and they pulled off a lot of it. Um, but yeah, after, after reading a little bit more about the, how the movie got made or why it was made. Uh, I've warmed up to it a little bit, but I felt really unemotionally attached on my first watch here. All right. Uh, It seems like a common thing for most of us here is the, excuse me, like obviously it's, it's hard to ignore that. Like there are essentially two movies going on here um, and they are both brought in uh, pretty, pretty quickly toward the end, both connected, uh, you know, very explicitly. Um, But like, I want to talk about how, they unfold in parallel sort of we've all mentioned that and uh how like uh i mean the way that you were just talking about it jenny um contextualizes it for me like the bobby's story doesn't necessarily try to like dissect the origins of like why he's doing this it just sort of lays a few clues out but then in the other half in orlock's half it's like literally all about the origins of how he got here his whole story is you know bobby's story moves very quickly but it happens um very externally right like he's acting he's moving the plot forward he's doing things uh he's terrorizing and then orlock's is almost all an internal journey you know like he just has to accept that a movie is his, of his is being shown. He has to accept that he's, you know, part of a new world that he is struggling to adapt to. And that, you know, sort of dinosaur mentality is poked at throughout. Um, but I wanted to talk about like how those two marry even before they come together in the plot. Uh, it seems maybe Harry's got something to say about that. Yeah. I would just like to say, I, I really like the way that uh, Jenny characterized Bobby as dumbass gunman, because I think that that's actually really important, particularly in the first act. I think that like the randomness and this movie does seem explicitly focused on like big scare quotes, explaining or not explaining um, man, random mass spree shootings. Right. Um, I think that the, this movie ultimately arrives at the conclusion, not that they're not understandable, but that there simply isn't that much there. Like, I, I think that it's very important that this movie depicts, especially juxtaposed with uh, Boris Karlov's storyline, that um, that Bobby has a relatively conventional home life that is just a little bit repressive and 
that he feels entitled to something different or he wants more than that, right? Like, I think that ultimately we end up at a place where Bobby is maybe the most sort of pitiful and understandable creature ever, right? I think that that speaks to the last line that Karlov's character has in the movie where he says, this is what I was afraid of, right? And like the the continued sort of demythologization of Bobby as this sort of cold-hearted killer as in fact just sort of like this this pathetic sort of um, underdeveloped, immature person who makes a lot of mistakes and has a lot of um, pent up resentment and anger. Um, And so I I think that it's really pointed that the movie doesn't try to get into their head and sort of mythologize him as like this killer with a purpose or with an idea and instead just sort of like portrays what, what actually was, which is that there's not really that much to him. And in fact, there is much more to this Boris Karlov character, right? Like he is the person with the rich interiority and the rich sort of disillusionment and he is the person that we want to get to know more. And I think that that juxtaposition speaks a lot to this movie's opinion on um, film in general and in the sort of like creative process and in the idea that like in a, in a strange way, um, Boris Karlov's character, his career has been about mythologizing death itself, right? In making it into something that is um, that is big and that is frightening and that is um, – that is uh, something worth reconciling with when in fact, like the, the opposite end of the spectrum is, is the target's perspective, right? Where it's like people die all the time for no reason because of horrible people. And like, there's, there's an absolutely nothing mythological or special about it. It's just life. It's just routine. And I think that, that those things smashing against each other. And um, that is the result of Boris Karlov and why he's feeling so, um, or I, I should call him Orlov, but why he's feeling so disillusioned and so left behind, right? Is that he was sort of like all about portraying this mystique that he now thinks is like uh, is a bygone era, as he continually alludes to in, in Act One. Again, almost too much, but it works. Uh, you should call him Orlock. Uh, Excuse me. That's yeah. the, I just no problem. I literally never called him anything. He's Boris Karlov in this movie, so like I just called him Boris Karlov. <laughs> you're, you're just gonna mix up the two. Uh, I believe the the name Orlock is a reference to Nosferatu. I believe is the the vampire. Uh, but yes, um, I it it is interesting, right? Like this film did. Uh, I'm trying to place this in proper historical context. I'm trying not to do that thing where I, I let, you know, decades of, of discourse and news and, and stuff impact how I think about a, a relatively at this point old film. Um, but I think that there is kind of a startling way that this film did predict the, uh, I don't know, the, the horrific tragedies that came out of relatively, you know, so-called mundane elements of American life, right? Like it's, it's very pointed that, um, you know, that this guy, you know, he eats candy bars. I think baby Ruth's he, uh, he drinks soda. I'm not sure whether it's Pepsi or Coke, but he, it's one of the two, right? Like he is like kind of a good old, uh, uh, you know, kid, uh, that is startlingly different, uh, from the, very uh, pointedly evil movie monsters that someone like uh, Byron Orlock would have played in his films. Right. Um, And somehow that element of it makes the horrifying nature of his crimes uh, that much worse in like a weird way. Right. Um, And that it, it, it feels like there is a, there is a a complete senseless nature uh, behind 
what he is doing that doesn't really fit in that I think that we can all see where it's coming from, or we all like know in the back of our minds where it's coming from. Um, but it, it like stands out in like such, uh, uh, it stands out so like strongly against the image of, you know, a vampire on screen or a count, uh, you know, who's murdering guests at a, a castle or whatnot. That it's, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you could just put a monster suit on our gunmen and just watch them bonk people over the head, drag them back to bed, slap some guns in like a rucksack and like get a sandwich to go. It was just like the whole thing was like, yeah, just rubbing his two brain cells together and deciding to go about this on his day and having a typewriter with red ink um, to, to have his final send off message. But yeah, part of it was that they're they're putting a, a balance in of feeling like he's methodical, you know, like carefully having his guns in a row in the trunk, but then also just that he's clumsy and drops them everywhere and just like tries to scheme to get free ammo or whatever from one of the many gun shops he frequents with his father. Um, by the way, gun control laws, you know, <laughs> let's talk about that later. Um, but yeah, I just found that it, the the motions and machinations and the fact that he doesn't really speak very much is just like yeah he's a, just a plain closed white boy monster apparently yeah the I, I really like how we're specifically painting Bobby to be just kind of a dipshit because like most people are dipshits you know like normal people are dipshits I guess I mean mm-hmm. in, 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 in as much as like normal is the thing that we want to paint anybody as in this movie. But like the, the I think that is like pointed to um, like specifically delineate him from the Karloff, very controlled, like, yeah, pure evil, as Aaron was saying, the character, but like sort of a controlled, a performance, right? And in uh, Bobby, it's instead given like more of a, um, you know, like, like he's, he is acted upon more by, the world that's changing around him than, than Karloff is Karloff, sorry, Orlok. Orlok is, you know, just, again, it's, you know, sort of an external versus an internal um, adaptation or, or coping with the world around them. Uh, there's that great scene. I mean, we're, I'm not going to jump right to the climax, but right at the uh, end of the movie, like when Orlok is walking toward Bobby and Bobby's cowering, he's missing every shot. Um, and Bobby turns to the screen and actually shoots Orlok's character on screen. Like he has become, it's so that, good. Th- he's become that divorced from, you know, there's, there's a lot more that I want to dig into there, but already two hands are up. So I will, uh, I will pass it off. Oh, sure. No, I appreciate that, Jason. And I, I honestly don't know if I'll have anything new to say. I, I think a lot of these things are still bouncing around in my head. And a lot of you um, have kind of started to unlock bits and pieces for me, which has been great. Um, Harry using the word uh, demythologization, um, which is a mouthful, and I rehearsed that uh, uh, with my mic muted to make sure I would say that somewhat right, um, because that's a lot. But like the idea of, or rather, I am coming around to the idea of like the lack of interiority on Bobby's part really making that thread sing. Um, And we kind of talked about it, or or rather uh, playfully alluded to it um, when we were watching about how this is just like Johnny Everyman as far as white dudes go. Like it purely coincidental that he like exhibits uh, physical resemblances to people like Matt Damon, Ron Howard, J- J- uh, uh, somebody, somebody said James Remar, you know, just like the whitest mm-hmm. of white dudes. Um, and like that plays into its favor. I mean, th- th- like 
yeah, a lot of people are, are dipshits, but I think like more pointedly, you know, a lot of people serve in the military. A lot of people pray before meals. A lot of people fucking love guns, uh, which, you know, if you got to love something, then yikes. Um, a lot of people are clumsy. Uh, and this idea that like a monster, this type of monster can come from anywhere is pointedly frightening. It's like an origin story without necessarily the origins because it's just like this is a this is a guy and like the like the monster just it it comes from him uh and like that's an origin story without the quote-unquote origin is more frightening like the Z, the xenomorph and alien uh we're not scared of the xenomorph because we you know know where it came from we're scared of it because of what it represents uh and like bobby represents like any one of us, right? Like he, he, he represents people. He he represents Johnny Everyman, white dude. Um, but I don't know. I, a lot of that is still kind of, uh, unraveling in my head, but I, I think speaking about it a little bit, like we all have done, it makes a little more sense to me. Yeah. Uh, pretty well characterized. I think that the reason why you're unpacking it is because I think that, that Bobby and particularly Bobby's parallels and juxtapositions with, um, the Boris Karlov storyline, um, the Orlock storyline are, um, they allow this movie to make Bobby symbolize a lot of different things simultaneously. Um, I think most pertinently for our discussion right now, I think the fact that, um, Orlock represents the great other, right? The monster, the, uh, the movie villain, the, the man who, who transcends death or like the, the Frankenstein. Whereas Bobby is, is pointedly meant to be ultimately familiar, right? He's, he's meant to be Americana. He's meant to be white. Um, we're meant to recognize in him, uh, familiar seeds, if not of our own lives, then of the sort of classic white picket fence, nuclear family, American life. Um, it's also it's interesting, right? Because I would not I would argue against the um, the justification or the um, the characterization of Bobby as motiveless, right? Because I think the movie gives you enough to piece together a motive, right? He's he feels emasculated by his family. He can't um, be with his wife in the way that he wants to be. He uh, has a bedtime. He is uh, living with his parents. His dad he still calls sir, and he is obsessed with being better than his dad. Um, that all sort of conflates with this obsession with guns and with what it means to be a man. And the fact that Bobby was traumatized by the war, which he assumingly uh, or presumably joined because of um, what that meant. Right. And, and his duty as a man and as a soldier and his anger and resentment surrounding that. So like you can piece those together, but at a certain point it really doesn't matter that much. Um, to speak to Jenny's point about gun control laws, it's really interesting that this movie seems to make the, the point that the, the scary thing here is not Bobby himself, but the fact that Bobby was given the capacity for mass murder by the system that surrounded him. Um, so that's really interesting. And so like, we're, we're meant to see this big shift that's happening, right? And this is the shift that, um, Orlock is maybe so afraid of even subconsciously is that we used to perceive monsters as separate as other as something that was on movie screens, whereas now the monster is us. The monster comes home, it's ripped from the headlines, and it looks exactly like us. It looks like a white person. It looks like a normal person. And that's what's supposed to be so scary. I think that's where the movie starts, right? I think that where this movie ends up 
is actually further demythologizing that idea, um, which I agree, Cody, that is a, a big mouthful. It might not be a real word. I, I don't think I could spell it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll roll on with it. We can leave this out or keep it up in. Words all the time. I can do it too. Um, so I think that like, uh, I think that this ends up at a place where it, it not only explains, um, the, the monster quote unquote, but it, it also gets to a place where it like, it talks about why we wanted that image and what that image does and what it elevates. Um, that image being the, the otherization of, um, to make up another word of, uh, um, monsters and sort of like the place that that has and still has. Um, and I think that it uses Bobby and all that Bobby represents, especially juxtaposed with Orlock and what Orlock represents to start to get there kind of to Aaron's point about how this movie is really ultimately very much about a capital T theme. And I, that was my attempt at a transition, Aaron. So I hope that that works. With <laughs> yeah. I hope maybe we'll have a bit of a, a back and forth here. Cause I, I think there's some, some interesting stuff there. I'm, I'm still kind of how Cody said, I think this film is, it's interesting to try and think and pin down to think about and pin down because it still feels like a lot of these thoughts are kind of formulating in a weird way. So sorry if this is a jumble, but it, it seems to me, um, you know, I, I really struggled with uh, uh, specifically looking at this film and thinking about films that are very clearly inspired by it. Right. I think that uh, no country for old men is of course based on a book um, and Cormac McCarthy is, is dealing with a lot of the same themes uh, that Bogdanovich uh, is doing here. Um and the Cohen brothers uh, are interested in that too. I think Tarantino specifically. I, I know that there's there's been a lot written about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I know that Tarantino, I believe, wrote an essay on this film. I believe it was it was around the same time that that film came out. Uh, it has been like scrubbed off the internet. You can't find it anywhere, uh, which is unfortunate because um, it might be interesting. But I, I do think even in Glorious Bastards, uh, the theater scene at the end of that movie, I think yeah. there's a lot of that. Uh, uh, there's a lot of this movie in that. Right. Um, and so I, my first thought was to kind of try and struggle with like, okay, what is this film saying about how media influences or doesn't influence violence? Um, because I think that that is, is partially what Tarantino is interested in at the very least. Um, but I don't think necessarily that's what this movie is doing. I think to me, at least my read, it seems kind of more further in line with what Harry is saying. Uh, and that it's about, how the horrific elements of society um, now seem to come from what is uh, been described to most people as quote unquote normal, right? Which is not really was never any actual normal, right? But like right, the, right. the concept quotes. of a, yeah, the concept of American society that was sold to a large generation of people, specifically post-World War II, uh, in that, you know, you have this kind of uh, uh, very uh, serene life, you have your kids, you have the white picket fence, you have a nice job and whatnot. And this is a, a perfect existence. And I think that this film is tying the character of Bobby into uh, a number of events in American history, specifically, uh, you know, Vietnam War is a good example that helped uh, kind of prove that that image of America was always false, right? Um, no longer are we the good, like clear, unambiguous good guys in a war. Uh, now wars are being described as boondoggles or quagmires, right? Um, and and politics in general are becoming more muddled in that sense. And as that happens, 
the fact that these these mass murderers are coming from you know kind of so called normal American society like white male Christian uh, society. Uh, it stands out even more, right? Because that was what was being sold as the safe elements of society. Um, and it, it is true, or like, it is abundantly clear that that is not actually the case. Um, and I think that this film is also, sorry for rambling a bit, but this film is also interested in the ways that uh, mythology becomes mythology from history, right? Um, you know, the character of a count in a castle uh is kind of a movie monster at this point. But for some people in the past, that was an actual figure, right? There was a really rich count who, you know, did prey on people, if not literally, then at least in in various other ways. And those mythological characters did stand for something. And I think over time that gets lost. Uh, And I think there is a conflation at the end between those two characters in a very interesting way that uh, maybe we can dig into that. But yeah. Sorry, that's a bunch of stuff, but <laughs> no, I no, I I, I do want to uh, dig into that. I just want to like clarify with maybe it's just going to complicate a really pretty simple idea. Uh, go figure. This is Trial of Episode One Hundred Twenty One. Um, the how like in a way, I almost expected this movie to sort of as it's demystifying the monster Orlock, like the classically uh, oogie boogie man type bad guy, that it would like start to like mythologize build the monster in the in bobby i I don't know that that's what i left with um because very clearly like you know you sort of expect with the ebbing and flowing of these characters how they're changing throughout that you know we sort of further uh mystify or excuse me mythologize bobby as as the monster but um and, and it kind of does but right right at the end i think cody maybe mentioned it earlier right at the end um it peeks behind the curtain and sort of like undoes that it's one last twist is like right when Orlock sees Bobby cowering uh, and, and, you know, whimpering, crying like a boy um, he says, is, is that what I was afraid of? You know, like he's ready. He's stanced up. Orlock is just like completely in the zone about to, I guess, attack. Um, he's uh, stanced Bobby. up. <laughs> he, he's, he's like, he's like doing he's, his monster movie thing, right? Like he's doing the hunched a shoulders. Yes. Yeah. He, come on. Uh, he's, he's doing the whole, you know, hunched shoulders thing. He's, uh, you know, coming toward Bobby. He does actually strike him, but he, uh, you know, like he stops short of, I guess, you know, further brutalizing him and like realizes that what he's done is he hasn't attacked a monster. He's attacked a person. He's, you know, like there are both things in that person and neither of them realized it, neither Bobby nor Orlock knew it. And I think that really ties in, uh, Aaron and I'm hoping to Harry's next point too, is that like how that rea- how the reality of uh you know uh of mass murderers um becomes a mythology of mass murdering through of course you know uh media representation and public discourse i really like that you tied it into um you know general uh, war vocabulary because that's exactly how these things soften and uh become less concrete less understood to the general public and i think that's what they're trying to show happened to orlock like he had sort of had an idea of what a monster was he sort of had like his place in the world solidified as the bad guy the one everybody would look to when they imagined horror and terror and he realizes that's not what people are seeing anymore like he is is that what he's afraid of he was afraid of a boy you know again i think i'm just complicating a pretty simple idea that the movie com- communicates but i think it takes like a strange very interesting circuit excuse me circuitous route to get there 
No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think that this this movie is is interested in the real quote on big scare quotes like face of terror, right? And I think that 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 demythologization process is really important to it because it's like even Orlock himself had this sort of elevated idea about death and about horror and about murder because he had an elevated idea about himself and about sort of humanity and his disillusionment is realizing that he did not actually embody those things and he is not actually that person and at the end of the movie he realizes nobody is and i think that the reason why this movie hits the very strange um offbeat and and sort of like um scary ending that it does is because the whole point is that like just because these things are not complicated doesn't mean that they're not terrifying right like bobby is absolutely the most terrifying thing that there is it just turns out that the most terrifying thing that there is in reality is not something that is scary or distant or ununderstandable it's just simply an entitled terrible human being right with a gun because like that is actually what the scariest thing in life is and i think that like there, there is sort of a doubling to that, that this is what I was afraid of moment, right? Because like Orlock was the guy who was like, he told that amazing story about death in Sumatra, right? And it was like, death was this mysterious, uh, powerful, inescapable force and not something mundane and not something, um, and, and there, there's sort of a preservation of self in that, right? Because it's like, I was working in service of this big elevated thing, and in fact, it turns out that that the real face of death and the real face of terror is just another scared person just like he was. And that is disillusioning. Um, and it's also uh, ultimately what he has to come to understand, right? Like that's the, the last point that he gets to. And that opens up this very interesting place for the role of, of media and um, film that we can talk about later. But now I want to hear what Jenny has to say. Yeah, and not to totally belabor the point that we're we're all coming to that you know monsters and fantasy and fictive horror is really out of the public interest in general, and you know that was out of fashion for what movies were in this time period. And that yeah, Vietnam, the war was on TV. That's what people were seeing, and everyday events and um, reportings on serial killers was just so much more interesting. But this brings me to my point about how. The best bit in the whole movie, there's a lot of good bits, but the best one is when a homeover Byron Orlock gets up, gets scared by himself in the mirror, and then just continues on with the scene. (laughs) And I was thinking about, yeah, it's just himself, his own plain human face that could still be frightening, even though he's not this dressed up fantasy thing that he's, yeah, reality is still frightening. Um, And and to take a little bit of a, a turn from where we're going uh, we're talking a lot about, you know, the the culmination of what's what's happening at this drive-in theater. And I found it really impressive and interesting that we see a really extended scene of setting up the lights for the movie theater and the car shuffling and selling tickets, yeah. like the the film reel getting set up and all of that. I was thinking about then the, the um, is it Sumatra story that uh, all of this is setting the stage for an appointment with death, right? It's just that look look at the way that we care about how this final big scene is going to occur in the movie in in the meta sense and also in the actual sense of the movie and i was just really impressed by that decision and and i mean we can't this is part of a polyplat series we can't not talk about the production design and those decisions because that's definitely what she's all about here or like the fact that 
this I mean, she probably should have received at least screenwriting credit, right? Because like what is this movie if it's not the thing that ends at that drive in? Like uh, so cool. So she got Oh, sorry to cut off, but she got she got credit for the uh story, but I don't know if she actually wrote the screenplay specifically. Sure. And I'm I guess I'm not sure of the distinction about getting credit there. But well, that works. Yes, that I works for me. That's enough. Um, but yeah, I, I like what Jenny said about uh, focusing on the production because like this is a movie that is about focusing on the production, right? Like it's it's literally a very meta peek behind the curtain, right? Like we are seeing Boris Karlov and a production of Boris Karlov's actual feelings um, and, and his career through fictionalization, we're seeing the actual director Bogdanovich, right? We're seeing the the look behind the, the peek behind the curtain of what it means to make a movie and how messy and self-serving that process can be. And there's this whole idea about what we're elevating and why. And um, ultimately, I think what Orlock arrives at is this understanding that like he had sort of there's a there's a great irony to his character, right? Because he talks about early on how before he knew it, he was made into this creature, this horror monster, and he doesn't know how to do anything else now. That's also something that he did to himself, ultimately. I think he, he came to see himself on those terms and and not realize that he was a part of this system that was producing this thing and what the ultimate production of that was, which is ultimately sort of an elevation of human value, right? I, th- I think that that's kind of what, what films are. And, and I'm, I'm thinking now a lot about like Inglorious Bastards and about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well, which are both kind of about that same idea, right? That like human life can have like this great, powerful narrative meaning in movies that, that w- only happens as a result of intentionality and care. And I think that um, ultimately he comes to see that and he comes to see the value that that still has, right? In my opinion, that's kind of where he arrives in this movie. And so I think that that focusing on the behind the scenes look and the production um, is a really important way to like, to shout that out, to shout out that like, hey, like this is, this is something we're constructing. Like this is, this is movie magic, you know? Yeah, I specifically in regard to Polly Platt, I'm trying to try and try and square the circle here about how I'm thinking because I you know she was involved in the production design uh also the she was a costume designer I believe uncredited on this film uh and and then you know was involved in the the writing of the story um this may be a bit of an anachronistic kind of uh take or like theory that I'm putting together here but one thing that I thought was quite interesting when researching Platt specifically um, and reading a good amount uh, about her. I didn't listen to the podcast episode that came out recently. Uh, is it You Have to Remember This, I believe, was the podcast? You must. You must. You must. Yeah, you must remember this. Um, I will make sure to listen to that. But I, I've done a good amount of reading and it... Sorry, what's that? No, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> I've done a good amount of reading and it seems like uh, one of the things that, that would come up over and over again with interview interviews, people talking about her, um, is that she was uh, very, very like hands-on in a lot of the elements in a way that a lot of uh, people on the production end often aren't. Uh, you know, as a producer, you have to be aware of costuming and sound design and whatnot, but you don't necessarily have to know the nitty gritty. And people would say that Polly Platt was like very, very hands-on and very, very like specifically knowledgeable about so many different areas of uh, filmmaking. Um, and... 
I, I think there's maybe something here as I'm thinking about like the climax of this film and having it set in a drive-in movie theater and like just how intentional that feels. I think there is, is something like really interesting um, that we can maybe put together and, and maybe even as we continue watching further polyplat films to see if, if those kind of little details specifically about filmmaking are things that she might've inserted into other films, uh, whether with, uh, Bogdanovich or, or not, um, because it, it feels pretty, I think genius, uh, specifically the climax of this film feels, uh, it, it's, you know, it feels deserved, I think by the end. So. Right. So I, I completely um, agree with what Aaron's read about Polly Platt, that uh, she was just such a force that had her hand in every element. So I, the way I took it from listening to the entire series about her, and you must remember this, is that uh, if you ever see Polly Platt's name attached to anything, she did that and so much more and so many more things than that. Right. She had such a holistic vision. And, and part of it was that, you know, she even suggested that Peter Bogdanovich insert himself into the movie. So that's part of her story by that's part of her trying to elevate her husband at the time into like becoming this tour de force that I arguably did become. And uh, some of the other production design decisions that were really noticeable to me specifically, because I was um, looking out for it while watching was that the, the entire home of the, I don't know, the Thompson's, the, the gunman's family, I just found it so horrendous to look at. It looked like a weird, <laughs> cheap play to me. And I, I, the lighting was really bad. I don't know. It's like they couldn't figure out how to not have in really intense shadows. But I do think that was maybe part of the demonization that they're trying to, to do here. But then um, it, remembering the podcast and what was said about um, what Polly Platt said about this own movie is that she specifically sought out design decisions that if her home was decorated like this, it would drive her mad to commit a mass shooting. So oh my God. We want to make it just like a really uh, a grating place to live. And, you know, there are so many pastels, like the dish rack mat matched the towels that he was using to set on the ground to cover up blood matched, um, you know, their little family portrait, like all of that. So it's just like, uh, imagine that the scariest thing is just a human that came from like a house with poor taste. Right. <laughs> I, I, I love this because like the way that we're introduced to this home is by um, Bobby just like haunting it for a minute while his family exists in the background. That is yeah, one of my favorite alien in his own home. It's wild. It's, it really is. It's like almost, it's almost stomach churning. Like it's very tense how like he stalks through that house and like it just added to that is the fact that he's like reviewing pictures and mementos and stuff like little windows to the past. Right. And just, he's not visibly seething, but you can tell like it's supposed to be an uncomfortable scene. That is incredible to know that Polly Platt put that together explicitly to be like, <laughs> what would make me want to shoot people? <laughs> it, the, the fucking inside of that house is so, uh, it's so blue. Like it's, it's like this light blue, like I think a powder very blue. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's supposed to to like very much match like the classic blue American skies. Um, that, that's kind of my take, I guess. And it's like the walls are blue. Uh, his his mom's like shirt and pants that she's wearing is also blue. Like it's just if you go back and you look at those scenes, like it's so blue. Even the the scene where he he kills his wife and mother, and then there's the delivery guy who's like dropping off groceries or whatever, uh, and he blasts him too. The, like the the paper towels on the rack are like sickeningly blue, like sickeningly blue paper towels. Uh, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's good though. I think, I think it works. 
Well, and then the ink that he uses to write is, of course, red, which is sort of like visually supposed to be denoting the exact opposite. Um, I kind of wanted to talk, if we if we can, we don't have to transition away, but um, I really am interested in everybody's ideas about the ending and particularly how um, the image of Orlock on the screen um, – or Orlov, excuse me, uh, distracts Bobby or, or freaks out Bobby enough that he shoots at it. And, and it kind of saves Orlov's life in that case. And sort of that is that is the big climax, right, of the movie and the sort of um, final statement of the movie's point. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing what everybody thought about that and, and what it kind of represented based on what we've been talking about so far, I guess, if you have any new ideas or if you had any ideas at the time and um, stuff like that. Um, I mean, it, it feels... To me, it feels loving in a weird. It, it feels well. No, that's how do I phrase this correctly? It feels like it. It is uh, the elements that are specifically regarding uh, like cinema and you know film projection and the drive-in theater. It it does feel uh, like Bogdanovich genuinely like loves and appreciates those elements right like the 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 scenes of the projector uh, the projection guy in the back like you know switching the the film and whatnot um all of that feels kind of carefully considered in a weird way i think that helps the final mm-hmm. scene stand out as horrific maybe i'm kind of reading that wrong um i don't know that maybe this is it's it i might be mixing it up with my take earlier about this film not like saying that like violence in america comes from violent film in a weird way uh but it 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 feels horrific because it feels like this place does feel kind of sacred in a weird way i don't know well yeah like i think this is going to tie into um what is something that aaron actually said while we were watching the movie uh was like the foreshadowing and like the long tail, like the dramatic irony of the Bobby character that like through the marketing and promotion of this movie, we know that he's uh, going to end up like snapping. He's going to end up going on a killing spree um, is really, really milked in this last scene in the final scene where uh, I mean, just to set it up, Orlock is arriving. Um, the producers are arriving for the debut of this movie at a drive-in theater. It is packed with cars and, uh, and Bobby finds his way up behind the screen after arriving there after his uh, shooting spree on the highway. He uh, gets behind the screen, pokes a hole, and begins uh, shooting people when they turn their lights on in, inside the cabin of their car. Uh, like the the dramatic irony of this movie really gets it comes to a specific, like a very very fine point in this last scene because uh, of course it's where like all the pieces of the movie, all the characters. Uh, that are moving the plot forward all do come to like a uh, conflict if only just for like literally seconds before the movie just ends. But I like, I I think I already shared my thoughts about like the very, like the literal ending, like exactly where the movie ends. Um, But like just how, how it spent so much time building that and how it uh, like worked toward making Bobby. I don't know. Like we know that he's already, uh, from the beginning of the movie, we know that what his character is. We know generally the arc of the character, probably except for the ending, and it's just about contrasting that with Orlock throughout, uh, or, or you know, comparing it. So the final, the, when the final scene is brought brought together, and it's shown that like, well, the monster of the past and the monster of the future are still are both you know people, uh, no matter how they see themselves, no matter how they self determine or what their you know roles uh, in society look like, they are still both people, and they sort of realize that in in very traumatic ways. Uh, it was, I think, I already shared my thoughts about it, but it just like it has 
that's the excuse me that's the part of the movie i'll be thinking about the most i think uh whether that's a sign of quality or of like how long we took to get there i'm not exactly sure but uh just very like a lot to think about in that final scene (laughs) it's okay to like a movie jason Um, i'm trying to do less of that (laughs) but before i i you said something i really want to comment on because i think it's really good but um does anybody else have any thoughts on the ending go for it cool um so you you said that uh however people sort of self-determine and elevate themselves they're still people i think that's really important to what this movie is ultimately saying about film itself right like i think that that Orlov is a character defined by um, the fact that he no longer thinks that he possesses that quality that elevates, right? He no longer thinks he can be the monster or he doesn't think he ever really was or really had it. I think that that is refuted by the fact that Bobby himself is as frightened of Orlov as Orlov ever was of him, right? Like, in, in fact, um, Orlov has the, the courage to um, attack Bobby and and approach him, whereas Bobby cowers from him at the end, and um, that that demonstrates to Orlov that like insofar as as everything he was was just a production and just an illusion, that's all anything any mythologization is, right? It's it's that um, what was I really afraid of thing that that occurs to him is like oh, just as I was making a mountain out of this pathetic person in front of me now cowering. That is what other people were doing for me. The the difference is that he was doing that for for people and sort of elevating the entire idea, whereas Bobby was about reducing. And and Bobby wanted to make everybody literal targets, right? Mm. And and reduce their um their uh lives down to something that could be a part of his story. And that's also an important part of Bobby is that Bobby is ultimately trying to attain the immortality that Orlov has, right? He writes that note. He goes to this drive-in movie theater and literally is shooting from the screen. When he's arrested by the cops at the end, the the only thing he says his last line in the movie is, I hardly ever missed, did I? And he he's trying to make himself into what Orlov is. He's trying to immortalize himself, essentially. The difference is that Orlov did that by elevating humanity in the form of movies, and Bobby does that by trying to reduce other people down to being a part of his story, down to being his targets, you know? And so I think that this is a movie that operates on the idea that, in fact, not only are movies not where violence comes from, but movies have this ability, art has this ability to sort of elevate the human experience by making it important, by making it something worth depicting and thinking about. And even if anything, what we need to do now and sort of like the action item, I guess, of this movie insofar as there is one is sort of recognize that, you know, like Orlov needs to understand his, his legacy and his part of this was that like, it was never about you necessarily it was never the truth of you you were always just a person that makes what you were doing even better you know because like that means that that you were your life was in service of this elevation you know and that's sort of like that's the the magic of movies and i think that's the thing that like that wins the day here is that um orlov is is able to leverage his mythology and the work of his life um on bobby who is obviously affected by it because it's what he wants and sort of like that's what gets him to attack our the attack on bobby to be successful i think good point uh 
I'm going to list a couple of my very final like stray thoughts about this movie. Um, one, Jenny, you mentioned that great moment where Boris Karloff gets up after a hangover and is, and is startled by himself in the mirror. That was actually Boris Karloff's idea. That was his own ad-libbed moment, uh, which adds, an, I think, another little layer of, of uh, I don't know, maybe meta narrative to it, uh, but at least it was, it was funny. Um, two is Bogdanovich, uh, excuse me, this film, um, Bogdanovich was sort of protege of Roger Corman, uh, former uh, trial of subject with The Mask of the Red Death, um, who that was his, uh, I think it was 60 one or something uh a horror film that we've covered on this podcast before so go check out that episode uh three is that bogdanovich got acting lessons on the actual uh production of this movie from boris karloff (laughs) there's a specific moment there's a specific not like long-winded but there was a specific moment that he that bogdanovich calls out in a retrospective video where he says that again that same hangover scene uh, Bogdanovich was supposed to get up. Sammy was supposed to get up and like laugh about his headache and, you know, sort of like a wry laugh and he couldn't get it right. Couldn't get it right. Kept fucking up the take. And Boris Karloff's like, you know, you don't have to laugh, right? <laughs> like you wrote it that way, but you do not have to laugh. And then it ended up just being like a groan that he gives tiny little moment, but that you're, you know, that, you know, 80 some year old Karloff was just like really done with his shit for a moment and like get off the stage, you get off the screen. <laughs> Uh, that that's an interesting cue into one of the notes that I took, um, knowing that Bogdanovich and Polly Platt were such huge fans of movies and specifically directors. I noticed a lot um, of choices that seem like, yeah, they, they care about the directing and legacy. They aren't necessarily into celebrity in the same way, but part of um, uh, I was kind of wondering, is Bogdanovich trying to play himself or is he trying to play a version of his directorial heroes when they were younger? <laughs> like, I, cause Oh, boy. It, it's like the time and place for like him to be playing himself, trying to convince by, or, um, Boris Karloff to shoot five days of um, film for, for this movie of, of his own. But I also think like, oh, maybe he is just like trying to think about what would Fritz Lang do here or Sam Fuller? <laughs> like how would they act in this movie? <laughs> <as themselves? laughs> uh, uh, my other little note about that scene is love to get slapped ass drunk and pass out on top of the sheets with my bro. Sounds like a great night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess very, my like kind of last note here, kind of slightly tied into this. There, there are, uh, bits and pieces of the Corman production, the terror, which is a, uh, an older film um, that was, was used kind of heavily in this. Uh, and specifically uh, there, there's a note in Wikipedia here from the, the article for the terror, uh, which is another great Wikipedia read uh, a few things. It says in May, 1966, Corman told Karloff that he would not be getting his deferred uh, $15,000 since the, the terror had never actually made its projected goal of $150,000. However, he said he would pay the money if Karloff worked on a new undetermined future project for Corman. This turned out to be targets uh, in 68 a few years later. And so Karloff was paid his deferred fee once he agreed to be in the movie. Um, and you do, I think, maybe thinking about Karloff's uh, performance in this, you do kind of get the feeling that maybe he was a little held hostage in a weird way uh, <laughs> in order to in order to get 15,000 bucks. He's like, yes, I've, I've agreed to I guess, shoot, uh, you know, two more days of whatever in order to get paid my money. I guess I'll be in your film targets for a little bit. Uh, The Terror, last thing, really quick, was directed by Roger Corman. Uh, It was supposed to be like 
a very, very quick, like get in, use uh, the sets from, I believe uh, a film adaptation of the Raven and then get out and just like make a film really quick. And it turned out to be like the worst film he made. It took like nine months. It was like well over budget Uh, and the directing credits uh, directed by Roger Corman, uncredited for various different things. uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, directed portions of the film as well as jack nicholson uh directed portions of it uh who is in the film as well so go read the wikipedia page for the terror it is quite interesting yeah my follow-up notes are are just sort of similar i really really love the meta relationship that bogdanovich and karlov have in this movie like especially with with what you just said aaron like that that scene where bogdanovich is begging karlov to be or orlov to be yeah uh, it's like it's so clearly just exactly what happened with this movie, and then they just wrote it into this movie. Is like you can see it actually happening in yeah. real life. We're like the feeling they just like shot them having an argument, and then yes. we're like, let's just put it in the fucking film. <laughs> right, is this part of the movie. Um, and similarly, there's a really funny meta line. Maybe one of one of the funniest jokes in the movie is when um, uh, Bogdanovich's character is just fed up with trying to convince Orlov. So he's like, ah, God, I'm going to go offer it to Vincent Price. It's so funny that like, they didn't bother to like create a uh, pseudonym for Vincent Price here. Like they're, they're so interested in winking at the fourth wall that it's just like, yeah, we know Karlov is Orlov, whatever. Vincent Price exists in this universe and he's just Vincent Price and it's fine. Um, I thought that was really funny. Um, And then my favorite scene in this movie, probably um, just from, if not from a formal perspective, then just like like to speak to this, this deep love of cinema and this defensive cinema that they wanted to have here. Um, I really, really love Karlov's um, Sumatra speech where he, he tells the story and like, it's one long take basically where it just zooms in closer and closer on his face as he tells this sort of classic story about the, the merchant um, from Baghdad who tries to escape death by riding his master's horse to Sumatra only to find that some are only for the master. Meanwhile, in the market to find that, that death is surprised because he had already meant to meet that guy in Sumatra. Right. That's such a great formalist sort of like elevation of, um, of form and storytelling. And it, it coincides so well with this theme of elevating cinema itself. It's, it's just like, they knew they had Boris Karlov and that Boris Karlov was a legend. And they were just like, let's just do a like legendary Boris Karlov scene. And then they like, they made the movie like make sense for it and like talk about why things like that matter, you know? And I think it's, it's a really cool formal flourish to like, to have a scene like that. And then to like build this movie that, that justifies it around it almost. Um, Just like this movie was like clearly sort of built around the idea of Boris Karlov and his, his identity and his sort of like place in the world. Um, Like, like Bogdanovich's character says this movie wouldn't work without him. So it's, it's really cool that they leveraged him that way. All right. Uh, I think that is our good segue into the final segment of every episode of Trilove, Love, which Harry needs to help me ring in. Yes, Jenny, would you like to join us? Uh, no. No? All right. Hmm. Well, um, okay. Well, see <gasps> me neither. Well, what was that? Excuse me? Hmm? No, I'm just saying Jenny and I are girl mates. I just enjoy the performance. You well, I didn't invite you to join us. I mean, a long time ago. Um, anyway, it's time for our final segment, Jason. Would you like to help me? I absolutely would. It's a segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. 
Wow, thank you, uh, all of you, as always, for contributing to what was maybe the most awkward lead into this bit yet. Um, but I appreciate it, uh, nevertheless. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to go back and edit it so that Jenny actually does help us uh, do the intro. So no, not to worry about being awkward. Okay, uh, you can leave what, what I said in then. Um, still, that's that's totally okay. Uh, one uh, trend that I've found myself uh, leaning into is for these uh, these recordings, you know, th- these series rather, when we do end up uh, doing a series of films, I, I look at them uh, casually in advance and say, hmm, which one of these is going to be the heaviest thing to talk about? Uh, and whatever feels, you know, whatever the forecast tells me, um, that is where I'll, I'll throw some tri-libs. Uh, and that is where tri-libs lands this time. Um, I, I think we'll uh, have some, have room for some very juicy uh, trivia sessions uh, in the coming weeks here. But for now, um, what we'll do is uh, is do some tri-libs. Uh, for those unfamiliar, by the way, with tri-libs, it is our attempt at recreating the world-famous game called Mad Libs, where uh, you take a story, you fill in the blanks uh, with various parts of speech, and uh, have an amusing little yarn uh, come out of it. So what I've done is uh, I've steered away from the mass murder um, gun craziness uh, of this movie and instead uh, went more for a a kind of a... um, you know, how would you say it? Kind of like an ode to a, a fading film star. Um, so we've got that in front of us. Um, there are some parts of the story that I'm going to need everybody's help with uh, filling in. So in the randomly chosen order of Jenny, Jason, Aaron, and then Harry, and then et cetera, on a loop, uh, we'll fill those in. We'll have something nice uh, to come out of this episode with, uh, you know, in addition to the the great conversations that have, that have been had. Um, but for now, uh, we should get to it. There's there's a there's a lot of help I'm going to need with this. So Jenny, we'll start with you. Could I uh, get from you, please, the the first name of a a teacher or professor that you've had? Um, maybe one that you've liked, or just you know one that you've you've had. Period. Uh, for some reason, Adam comes to mind. Adam Sheridan is a high school social studies teacher of mine that had a belly button ring. He told the class that he got a his belly button pierced in the one week that it was cool. So that's, that's oh a long standing fact that I've kept with me. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. well, sh- sh- shout out. St- oh, sorry, Harry. I stepped over you a little bit. Well, it's okay. I was just upset by that knowledge. That's I don't like it. I don't oh, like, I feel like I, on the contrary, I feel like I'm a better person for knowing it. Adam, we know you're listening. Uh, shout outs to you. You've, you've left your mark on the world. Uh, next up, Jason uh, from you. Could I please get the last name of an actor that you admire? Garbo. Great choice. Uh, next up, we have Aaron. Could I please get from you the uh, the name of a brand? Uh, Hasbro. Hasbro. Uh, Harry. Uh, a verb, if you please, Mister Mackin. Ran. All right, and back to Jenny. Could I get an adjective from you, please? Uh, elegantly. Perfect. Is that and... is that an adjective? It yeah, might be right. an is it, is it punk rock? Yeah. Is it punk rock to split hairs over grammar, Jason? I ask you. That is a deep, deep cut. Um, that is painfully I'm gonna, deep. I'm going to shuffle away from that, Jason. Uh, speak of the devil. Could I get an animal from you? Specifically, hopefully Abe. But if you if that's not in the cards, then then maybe a different one. 
And we're going to um, be very critical, so you better name an animal. Oh, God. Um. Um. Dog. That's, that's <laughs> you just would take two minutes to say dog? Uh, Aaron, if you could please not take two minutes to get me a noun. Um, birdhouse. Interesting change of pace for you, but I, I like it. Harry, could I get a, a noun from you, please? Aaron. Oh. Fascinating. Uh, Jenny, uh, type of vehicle? Uh, a gondola? Well, kind of. Yeah, I'll take it. Okay. Yeah. Is a gondola a vehicle? Wait, what? You can move. <laughs> yep, that makes it a vehicle. Uh, judges? Yep, the judges are giving me the thumbs up, so we're good to move forward. Uh, Jason, a, a genre, if you please. Mystery. Excellent. Uh, Aaron, the name of an actor, full name, first and last. Uh, we'll go with uh, my boy, uh, we'll go with Boris Karloff. 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 Uh, and Harry, the name of a different actor, please. Nicholas Cage. The only correct answer. Uh, much appreciated here. Uh, okay, here we go. Jenny, from you, could I please get your go-to icebreaker question? Oh, wow. Uh, what's a movie you've seen too many times? Brilliant. Uh, for me, it's Two Towers. I think that's what I've seen the most in theaters, like six. Uh, I don't know if that's too many, but certainly the, the most. I'm feeling time as I'm typing here, and I'm not actually typing. Um, but now I am. This narration will be great in the final product, and we're good to move on. Jason, uh, a nickname, please. Hmm. Is uh, that the nickname? Oh, okay, uh, go ahead. This is really struggling this time around. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not here. Um, these are these are some humdingers. To be fair, I, 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 I they've stepped up a little bit. Can I uh, can I suggest a nickname? Please, please save me. Sultan of Sweat. <sighs> I, I don't think we. Should, I don't think. Uh, uh, too late. It is. Uh, it is wait, etched wait, in concrete. Yes, I would. I would like to solidify that one. I also. I uh, co-vote Sultan of Sweat as the nickname I suggest. Thank Can you. I ask where that came from? What just happened? Uh, I was reading up on, uh, you know, the MTV show Next. <laughs> and the yes. Fact come up off the Next bus. One of them was nickname is Sultan of Sweat. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I wonder what the etymology uh, of that is. Either very negative or very positive. Like there's no. It's either a very good nickname or a very bad nickname. I feel. Probably. Hmm. Much to consider. Uh, but speaking of next, uh, up next here for us is Aaron. Uh, could I please get a planet from you? Uh, Uranus. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, Uranus. Hmm. I will try to remember to pronounce it that way, um, but my brain is only half-functioning right now, so no promises. Uh, Harry, from you, could I please get a number? Four. Or, uh, I, easy. I don't know what your problem is. 
Jenny, uh, a film director, uh, if you may, please. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll pick Wes Anderson. I guess you will. Uh, and Jason, from you, could I also get a number? Oh, Lord. Um, you can do this. Uh, 60. Nine. Um, I'll make sure that's accurately reflected. Perfect. Uh, What do we got here? Aaron, uh, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? Oh, uh, seven. Damn. Are you an ambassador? What's going on here? Is that good or bad? I don't know. No, that's pretty good. I don't know. I don't always get seven hours. Uh, we don't have to get into that, though. Harry, could I get a, a body part from you, please, figuratively? Elbow. Elbow from my elbow. Uh, Jenny, a verb, please. Uh, singing. Perfect. Jason, uh, this is a toughie. Could I get an appliance? An air fryer. See, look at that. You're a king. Uh, Aaron, uh, the name of a blockbuster movie or just like, you know, franchise. Uh, Avatar. James Cameron's Avatar. Oh, boy, oh, boy. If you could do specifically James Cameron's Avatar, just to, you know, yeah. That's the full name, I believe. James Cameron's Disney's Avatar? Is that a Disney thing? I've lost track. Um, It wasn't originally, but it is now, yes. (laughs) It is now a Disney thing. Everything oh, is a, a Disney t- thing. This podcast it, is a Disney thing. Uh, Disney's Try Love, uh, a poo poo pee pee production. Um, up next, Harry, could I get from you an adjective, please? I, I promise we're close to the end. I feel like there's been a lot here. Jumped. An adjective? Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I thought you said verb. Did I say adjective? Uh, my no, brain you, you did, and my man Harry was talking a lot of shit earlier. Uh, I was. Uh, <laughs> wait, 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 English major. Wait, 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 wait. Harry is right. You can be jumped. You know what? We what can go with that. Jump? Let's go with up jumped. That's an <laughs> I, you know what? The concrete had not set yet, so we were able to sneak in that change. Um... Let's uh let's get a clean read from Jenny on this next one, which is also an adjective. Uh, you know, I'm going to defer back to Harry. You're going to do another adjective? Yeah. Downtrodden. Man, two words. Uh, let's see, Jenny, would you still like one? Um, or or would you like to pass this along to Jason? Yes, I have one. Nope, she got to do it. I'm calling it audible. Oh, wow. Sports. Wow. I didn't think we were going to get in any. So this is uh, sort of a a broader ask. Um, But Jenny, uh, could I get from you your favorite kind of person? Uh, A curious person. I love that. Uh, And now, Jason, could I get from you your least favorite kind of person? A curious person. This is going to be good. And finally, finally, uh, as we always conclude these with, Aaron, could I please get from you the name of a movie? 
Uh oh. Uh, you know what? We're gonna go with a uh, voyage to the planet of prehistoric women. Prehistoric women. All right. Uh, shoutouts to all the prehistoric women. Come on the pod. Uh, you know. Um, more on that later. Never. Um, but I think that's everything here. Uh, if not, that'll be a funny thing for us to encounter. Uh, but now without further ado, as I take a quick sip of water, ah, really hits the spot. Uh, I present to you all Trilib's fading star. <clears throat> My name is Adam Garbo and I'm a big star, or at least I used to be. You see, I got my start in Hasbro commercials. You remember the kid who would run next to the elegant dog? <laughs> Believe it or not, that was me. A talent agency called Birdhouse Aaron Incorporated saw my work and wanted to represent me. I'd want Birdhouse Aaron to represent me. Before I knew it, my family had packed up the old gondola and moved to Hollywood. I realize I've come to be known primarily as a mystery actor, but my breakthrough role was actually alongside my boy Boris Karloff and Nicolas Cage in the sleeper hit, What's a Movie You've Seen Too Many Times? I even got lucky for a while with, uh, I, let me try that again. I even got lucky for a while with a recurring role on the sitcom Sultan of Sweat from Uranus. It got canceled <laughs> after only four seasons. Um, four seasons. Buddy, we got to get that back on the air. Uh, but it was decent money while I looked for other gigs. Meeting Wes Anderson, the world famous director, was one of the best things to ever happen to me. Working with him for 69 motion pictures that collectively brought in $7 billion, <laughs> boy, that'll be the day, was something I never thought I'd be able to do. There were times when I thought it would all be over, like when I almost shattered my elbow trying to sing across an air fryer on the set of James Cameron's Avatar. <laughs> but ultimately, I've been blessed with an up-jumped career and a downtrodden family, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. <laughs> and, here I, and here I find myself, old and on the brink of retirement, in an auditorium filled with both curious people and curious people alike at the premiere of my final movie. Soon, the opening credits for Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women will start to appear on screen, and my final, por- uh, my final performance rather will begin. The end. Woo! Wow. Woo! I loved it. Great job, Cody. You should go into screenwriting. Kind of, it kind of sounded like you said my final porn will begin uh, the first time around. It was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. That has been another thrilling edition of Cody's Noties. Again, listeners, and this is only for the listeners. I only do this show for the Cody's Noties. But it is now time for us to say goodbye. It is uh, our episode on Targets, the 1968 uh, directorial debut of Peter Bogdanovich playing at the trial of this Jesus. Got a big head about that one. Uh, playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. Get your tickets at Trilon.org. Jenny, thank you so much for being on our show once more. Thank you for lending your expertise and voice and uh, making sure we stayed on track. Uh, thank you. It's a delight and a, pres- a pleasure to talk with you all about movies. And I was specifically excited because I you know, can't recommend enough that you must remember this season about Polly Platt. There's also um, a series about Bela and Boris. Um, as well, which one episode talks about targets. So if you want even more than we've shared today, that's all I can plug. Wow. Thank you. I will put those in the show notes. Uh, is there somewhere that anybody should find you on Twitter and or Letterboxd and or wherever you want to be found? Uh, yes. On social media, my name is usually um, Ackerson Jenny, Jenny Ack, something like that. I'm very findable. Excellent. 
Uh, well, that has that will conclude our episode. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, please find uh, a way to support the Trilon. Um, it is uh, going to be a strange time for them, uh, as it has been for about a year prior to this. But uh, like I said, you can find the tickets at thetrilon.org. You can uh, join the Trilon Club and get the little booklets that you can find in the Trilon. Uh, get those delivered to your home along with a lot of other cool uh, freebies and punch cards and cool stuff. And hey, if you go to the Trilon, you might start seeing us around there before long. Am I right, fellas? I mean, you might, talk might about a horror movie. Yeah, talk about a horror movie. Uh, hubba, hubba. Is, yeah. Hmm. What, is, what kind of horror movie gets a, an eek and a hubba hubba? Uh, is that, uh, what was the name of Voyage, Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to go Quiet Place, but okay. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. This is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Uh, I did that in the wrong order. So once again, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can still find me on Twitter at Arbyplace. Man, if you were a pitcher in a baseball game and I was on first base on the other team, I would have gotten picked off uh, by your, say, your, yeah. your majestic maneuvering on the mound there. Uh, that was a, a sweet sports reference uh, from me, who has been Cody Narvison, and you can find uh, tidbits like that and more uh, on my Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Harry, Shitaki Harry. Uh Aaron, Arby, please, although I am locked in on private and not using Twitter. So uh, I don't know. Just try and follow me if you want, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'd like to leave you with a little story to think about as you drive home through the darkness. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, a rich merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the marketplace to buy provisions. And after a while, the servant came back, white-faced and trembling, and said, Master, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And I turned to look, and I saw that it was death that jostled me. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Oh, Master, please, lend me your horse, that I may ride away from this city and escape my fate. I will ride to Samara, and death will not find me there. So the merchant loaned him the horse, and the servant mounted it, and dug his spurs into its flank, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he rode towards Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace, and he saw Death standing in the crowd, and he said to her, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And Death said, I made no threatening gesture. That was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. <laughs>